Hi, I'm David Pogue. Welcome to the RV Navigator Podcast, your digital home for the RVing lifestyle. Visit the RV Navigator homepage at rvnavigator.com for additional information about each episode. And now, here are your hosts, Ken and Martha, podcasting from their mobile studio that might be parked in a campground near you. Hello, this is Ken, your RV navigator. And Martha, the co-pilot. And we're talking to you on a rainy day in Florida. We were waiting and waiting to make this podcast <laughs> because, because those of you who are RVers know that on a rainy day in your RV, you really are aware of the rain falling on your roof, if even you when a, you have yes, a rubber one. If you have a metal or, an, or a fiberglass roof, it really gets noisy. And they even had a lot of hail here, so yeah. we, we didn't have hail, but... Uh, Many people around here lost their cars because of damage with hail. Wind chills. So, you are listening to the April 2019 edition of the RV Navigator. And you want to be sure to visit the RV Navigator website so that you can get the notes and the links and everything. Oh, I see. And the monthly wallpaper. Oh, and the, yes, the monthly wallpaper. For For the calendar. And, of course, this month features a fabulous picture of a glacier. Where's the glacier? In Antarctica. Of course it is. (laughs) Well, this month is going to be dominated pretty much by our recent trip to Antarctica, which pretty much took up, well, the whole month. As we mentioned last month, (laughs) we actually had to mount the the podcast a bit early because we left. I hope that's okay. I always feel slightly weird when we (laughs) make an RV podcast and talk about someplace else that we have traveled rather than being in the RV. Well, we've talked about... Obviously, this is uppermost on our mind. Cruising as being RVing on on steroids. So it's just another form of RVing. I don't think (laughs) Recreational vehicle? A a cruise is not a recreational vehicle? (laughs) And on one of the days right before we left Florida to go on this trip, I was doing aqua aerobics in a pool, and a lady started talking to me about our trip, and she gave me the weirdest face and said, um, if you want to be cold, why don't you just go home? <laughs> oh, that's really cold. It wasn't all that cold in Antarctica. No, I would say we endured temperatures slightly above and slightly below freezing, well, and I, which I, any northerner is used to. And I do have to say that uh, in our defense, for spending much of this show, this episode, talking about our recent trip. Antarctica was a really special trip for us. Uh, Not only was it visiting the seventh continent, the frozen continent, but it was a unique adventure, which I think our listeners would like to hear about. It's not just the typical cruise where you sit back and enjoy the beach. When we prepared for this trip, in my mind, I was kind of preparing for going back to Alaska, um, which was certainly not very good preparation because (laughs) Antarctica is very different from Alaska. Uh, When you are in Alaska and you see glaciers here or there and snow here or there, it doesn't compare to the immensity of the Antarctic continent. And long ago when we were still working, we took a cruise around the bottom of South America and I can remember being outside as we went around the bottom and just feeling this distant immense coldness and and that's just always present there and you don't feel that when you're in the northern hemisphere and antarctica is unique in that there is virtually no native plants or animals that live on the continent there's a few lichen and a few funguses but there are no animals no bugs no insects uh-oh here comes no some ins- rain again <laughs> <laughs> Ah, yes. No insects, no bugs, no animals, uh, no warm-blooded animals. Everything is either marine life or is temporary and and leaves in the winter. And if you try to compare it to the North Pole, which is, I guess, what we're more familiar with being in the Northern Hemisphere, they are really very different because the North Pole is on sea, And the ice melts on the sea, especially these days, where the South Pole is on a huge continent that is surrounded by its own weather system and water system. Uh, We're used to the Gulf Stream coming from the Caribbean and warming up Europe, which always makes me jealous because European cities are much warmer than the one where I live. And Antarctica has a similar sort of uh, water flowing system that circles all the way around the continent, continent and keeps 
keeps a lot of the water systems from the north from actually approaching the continent. It's like its own planet, its own world, kind of separate from the rest of the globe. And it's called the Southern Ocean. And we didn't. We learned a lot about these this uh, continent uh, during our travels because we had nothing else to do. <laughs> As we said, th- this cruise was not only one of the most expensive trips we've ever done, uh, which is why we haven't done it until now when we're over seventy years old because we just couldn't afford it. Some of us are not over seventy. You're not over seventy yet. No. Oh, is that coming up pretty soon? <laughs> oh, sooner than I'd like to admit. Here, I thought you were in my decade. No, I'm, I'm hardly ever in your decade. I'm taken aback. I'm a child bride. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I've interrupted your well, train of thought. Some of us had to wait till their 70s. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is sad. No, you're and lucky you know, that you well, got to go in your 70s. Well, but when you're over 70, what happens? You start to become senile. And, and while we're on the topic of old So I'm age, not going to remember this cruise in the, in the next year? Well, you took 6,000 pictures, so that should help. And while we're on the subject of old age, we were surprised to see many of our fellow passengers on this trip to be considerably older than we were. <laughs> they were uh, not remembered either. <laughs> <laughs> so they were waiting and saving and waiting and saving, just like we have, to take this trip. Because it's very hard for these ships to go down to Antarctica. The only way you can go to Antarctica, and this has surprised several people that we've talked to, the only way that you can go there is by ship. You literally can't fly, and of course you can't drive. So there is only one way to go, and it is a very uh, arduous trip. And I think about, we just had the experience of watching on TV this Norwegian ship that was floundering off of the The coast coast of of Norway. Norway. And that ship was a new ship and was competently crewed and everything, but they had some serious problems with weather. And if that kind of thing had happened in Antarctica, it would have been all over for that ship. It would have sunk. You're really on your own. Very much so. The The experience is very unique and very lonely. We saw no other real cruise ships while we were there. Which made it kind of counterintuitive that you should save a trip like this for your old age. (laughs) We had a doctor on board, as most cruise ships do, and as far as I know, everybody who got on the boat with two feet got off the boat again on their two feet. But it does give you pause when your normal uh, travel insurance, which we have carried for many years, says, oh, we'll be happy to rescue you from anywhere in the world except for Yemen, North Korea, and Antarctica. So that made us feel no rescue. that we were really on our own. Well, we, our insurance uh, was interesting to cover, and they, well, I don't know what they would have done had you had serious problems. And well, you were just, you, we, well, were, we were encouraged by the travel so, company that we booked the tour with to purchase their insurance, and I suppose if we had, they would have done something to get us off of there if that needed to happen. Um, our ship was fairly large and had a helicopter deck, oh, if a right. helicopter could come from no, somewhere. No, helicopters. <laughs> from South America. So let's just kind of, uh, we'll, we'll talk about the itinerary, and then we'll talk about some of the specifics of this adventure. And we hope that you're interested in this, and uh, please... Please uh, send us questions and uh, put this on your agenda if you're thinking about if you're uh, thinking about adventure travel because this is definitely an adventure. An adventure, and it's costly because it is so wild and, and labor intensive. And labor intensive, as we'll talk about in just a minute. But we left from uh, here in Orlando, and you fly south, and the cruise congregates in Buenos Aires, which of course is only halfway. Well, it's two thirds of the way down the southern. The South America. They congregate everybody in that area so that you can take the charter flights to Ushuaia, which has not too many flights down to the very southern tip of South America. It seems that one of the main purposes of this city's existence is to prepare people for um, launching trips to and from Antarctic. Um, otherwise, why on earth? And scientific would, stuff too. Otherwise, why on earth would you want to be there? I mean, the Argentine yes. government has it tried is. to make some 
projects down there, like a cell phone yeah. building factory, we, we, to encourage people to be there. But Ushuaia's main purpose, in my mind, is um, staging trips. And to we've the been Antarctic. there before, but when we did Patagonia, we were there, and we did uh, we didn't go down south, further south, but we took a, a Patagonia cruise from there. So we've been to Ushuaia a couple times, and we're not surprised by what we found there. But it is kind of a, a the last outpost has thirty thousand inhabitants, not really worth visiting, although it is kind of scenic. So even people from Europe and our cruise ship had quite a few Germans and French-speaking people on board come to Ushuaia as well, because there's nowhere in their part of the world where you can fly south and get on a boat. And you can't really fly to Ushuaia itself from any place outside of Argentina. And of course, the other staging point is in New Zealand, which would have been an even longer Ooh, haul That would have been a lot of sailing days. Yeah. So people do it from there as well. So those are the two main spots. So from there, you get on your ship, and our ship had about 400 passengers, and that's down from its total capacity because they had so much equipment on board for us to be able to land in Antarctica without any assistance, outside assistance. So the ships have to be very self-contained, including being able to get their passengers on shore without any any extra equipment. We really wrestled with this when we were doing research and deciding what kind of a ship to take. Yes. When you are on the continent, because it's very regulated to keep it as wild and natural as possible, uh, the ship tour companies are only allowed to put 100 passengers at a time on shore. So one thing you would think on a ship the size of ours is, well, that wouldn't give you very many chances to be on shore. You would have to keep waiting for the others who are on shore, and you have to stay on on the deck of the ship. So that was a factor we considered. But when you are in a smaller ship, as we have been at times, uh, it's much more vulnerable to the wind and the waves. And once you leave Ushuaia, you cross Drake Passage and... The Drake Passage. And that area of ocean that's kind of separating the Atlantic from the Pacific with a little of the Southern Ocean from Antarctica thrown in can be very wild and woolly. And many uh, sailors have lost their lives there over the years. And and you're warned that you could get really seasick. This is our third time being down there in that area. And I'm happy to say that I did not get seasick. Although the, we had swells and some other people got more perturbed than I did. But to me, it's like the first time we drove to Alaska and people told you all these scary stories about breaking down on the drive. Yeah, Sure, it happens now and again, but by and large, I think you will be fine. So you get to Ushuaia and uh, it was about 50 degrees. And we were very nervous about what to bring on this trip because what's the weather going to be like and what, you know, how much clothing do we really need? They talked about having multiple layers. They they made it mandatory that you had to have rainproof pants, waterproof pants, rainproof shoes, and they gave us a windbreaker jacket shell that was waterproof also. So water and cold make ooh make me very uncomfortable. So we had some hesitation about what we should take. And we actually took an extra suitcase that had our warm weather stuff in it. Well, it was aggravated oh, by the fact yeah. that the beginning and the end of this trip were in South American cities where the temperatures were in the <laughs> 80s because it was still summer there. So we needed some warm weather clothing in addition to all the layers that we brought for Antarctica itself. That made and, it And of course, e- even though we say cruise, this was uh, an adventure cruise, therefore there was no It wasn't necessary no to bring any fancy There clothes. was no dress code, so that, that made it uh, easy from that aspect. There was nothing like having to put on a tie. No, I never saw a tie during the whole thing. And most of the time we went to the to dinner and and in our shorts and well no, no in no. our in, in in our bottom layer of the many layers that we wore outside. <laughs> so we took uh long underwear we took uh, a pair of pants that were heavy. We took long sleeve shirts. We took, uh, of course, a top long underwear uh, for the for the T-shirt, and I took um, a fleece and a vest so that I would have uh, at least three layers underneath my jacket. 
And of yeah. course, before you leave the ship, you put all these layers on. The first time we did it, it literally took us half an hour to get dressed. <laughs> I was having flashbacks to when I was a toddler, and my mother would put me in my snowsuit so I could go play outside. And then you're still inside on the ship, so you start sweating like crazy. Oh. <clears throat> because the ship is nice and warm. So the first day on the ship, we actually spent uh, getting our jacket getting our rubber boots that which, were up to your knees. Which they loaned us. Which they loaned us and were fleece-lined, or they were nicely lined, or they were warm, which you put your wool socks on to keep your feet warm inside the boots. And you can imagine the logistics of having 400-plus passengers and having to have enough boots of all the various sizes that those people will need. Boots, of course, were sized in European sizes, which we didn't know. And even when we knew how to convert, when you're wearing three pairs of socks, your shoe size is not the same as it would normally be. So it was quite a lot of work for them to get us all assigned to comfortable boots, which we used the entire time we were in Antarctica, and we had a special tray in our cabin where we could yes. put them when we came back <laughs> so they that wet. they could drip <laughs> in the tray instead of on the carpeting. Because sometimes they had snow on them, and sometimes they had just water, but they were definitely or wet. penguin poo. poo oh, oh, penguin poo, which we saw a lot of. They, we spent the first day doing that. They had about 10 lecturers or scientists on board who were giving us information. So this turned out to be almost like a three-week college course. An intensive college course. Not only did we have, didn't have anything else to do, but with these 10 scientists on board, they always had informational lectures that kept us abreast of penguins and geography and water conditions and what ice is flow of water around the continent. All sorts of stuff that uh, we learned while we were there. So many of the tidbits that we will talk about um, are newly learned information. Penguins are not just penguins. Penguins have a variety of different <laughs> species that will give you. So they would have these lectures in multiple languages, which was also very, very interesting. Impressive. And they would give us tips on, on where we were going the next day. Because when we look at the itinerary, there are no towns. There are no outposts there are other places, than scientific outposts. Places with names, like yes. islands with names and yeah, they were coves named. with names. So we sail across the Drake Passage, and then you're in the Arctic Peninsula, Antarctic Peninsula, which is actually quite, uh, has a lot of uh, fjord type of areas that are quite protected. So when we got there, the ship uh, actually calmed down and everybody was able to function normally. And our, our first stop was in the caldera of a volcano. So once the ship managed to get into the caldera, which was trickier than we understood because there was a rock jutting up from the entrance, uh, then the sea was nice and calm. Well, and, and overall, after we went through the Drake Passage, the, the it, it calmed right down. So when you get up to this area, they pull up the, the, the ship to close to shore, within a couple hundred yards of shore, they drop the anchor, and then they launch the Zodiacs. And the Zodiacs are rubber boats powered by an outboard motor. They have a launching area from the boat... They put out platforms, and the Zodiacs tie up to the platforms. In groups of about 25, you get into the Zodiac. They take you to shore, which is usually on the order of 10 minutes. And there is a beach, or there is snow or something. There's uh, some sort of land, and you jump out and go up on the shore, and they usually come to places that are full of penguins or seals or through sea lions or different kinds of animals or very scenic location. One of our first stops was an area that had been a very productive whaling station yes. in the early 1900s. And, of course, because an Ant Antarctica is cold and things don't rot away, many of the facilities and even wooden structures were still there, very easy to see and recognize what they had been and what they were used for. So you got the feeling that stuff would be there forever, and it was like we were visiting some sort of decrepit ghost town when we were on that spot. Many, many things like that that we saw. And of course, things like whale bones and uh, skeletons of animals were just littering the place. But I think we were there to see the colonies of penguins, primarily. Animal life. Uh, of course, the penguins are only there during the summer, because that's where they populate, and that's where they molt. 
And so we were kind of at the end of the season. This was actually the last cruise of the season, uh, even though it was in February and early March, so that we would then uh, see these animals in their molting stage because that was what they do just before they go back into the water for full time for the rest of the year. Which makes sense when you think about looking at penguins. They are very clumsy on land and, and uncomfortable there, and that's not where they should be. They should be zipping around in the water catching fish. But when you're having babies, you have to do that on the land. And that's when you're what they're, your eggs. That's what they were doing in the summer and, and raising and feeding those chicks and getting ready to take off once again. So we again. saw lots of chicks, too. So to prepare for the winter season, they lose all their feathers and get new ones. And while they are molting, they cannot go in the water to fish because they are not watertight at that point. And so many of the penguins we saw were hungry. Now see how much we've learned. (laughs) (laughs) We listened to the lectures. Spending an hour or two on shore was usually enough because uh, once you've seen the penguin hang out. Uh, there's not much else to do. Once you've walked up the hill to look at the scenery, there's not much else to do. Where did we visit? I couldn't even list the places we visited because they were n- nowhere. There was nothing there. There was no town. It's not like visiting a port. So we had to bring everything on shore that we needed. The ship had to be responsible for getting us to shore and bringing us back in these Zodiacs, which had to have a driver and, you know, they had to have safety things. We had to wear life preservers and, and all that sort of stuff. And we would often get uh, a little bit of spray and stuff, but we found the weather to be quite pleasant most of the time. The ship's crew preceded us on land every day before they started taking the Zodiacs out and made sure that uh, when we were walking on snow that there were no crevasses underneath and they laid out uh, areas that we should avoid the penguins getting too close to them although we had the impression the penguins were not too bothered by us and sometimes they came pretty close to us uh, but which was that, okay but that was their they can choice come to you, but you can't go to them <clears throat> so they always laid out areas where we were free to walk around and then areas that we should stay away from so there was no guided hike or walking tour once you got off the boat for the most part um, they also hauled a lot of survival gear yes, onto amazing. the shore every day because they had to be ready for high waves or a storm that would have prevented us from taking the Zodiac back to the mothership. So they literally brought tents and sleeping bags and medical supplies and they learned apparently the hard way this didn't happen while we were there that they had to put this stuff fairly far uh, away from the landing area because one time one of the glaciers calved and a giant chunk of ice fell in the water and made a big tsunami wave and came ashore and washed all the emergency supplies away. So uh, they were very, very safety conscious, and that made us feel very confident once we got the hang of how things worked. So photographically, it turned out to be a really fascinating experience, although kind of monochromatic because everything was black and white. It was either snow or black rock. There was no green, and there was only a few lichens to add some color. But the the mountain peaks were really spectacular, and of course you have some water in there and uh, some animals in there to add to the excitement of the pictures. And uh, the the panorama of the vast amounts of snow and ice and glaciers was really, really something. Uh, but without something human there, you quickly lost a sense of how big things yes. were. And when we were back on the mothership, we would look back at the zodiacs and we could barely see them because they were so tiny compared to the vastness of the scenery. That was awesome. And on some of the days, you might think that just being on shore for two hours would have to do the rest of the day. We would go back on the Zodiac and take a cruise around the bay or the area. To look at the icebergs and the water. Or look at cormorants that were nesting up on the rocks. And so it felt like we had full days full of activity and uh, we were not bored for a minute. No, I don't think so either. And and with the courses and the the lectures that they had, it made it actually very interesting. I was going to mention that... 98% of Antarctica is covered with snow or ice or glaciers. So that's why you don't see any plant life. But if you compare it to Alaska, now we have been several times to Alaska. And I remember one day we went on a boat tour from Seward that uh, was... 
<laughs> nine glaciers in one day. And the boat raced literally at 40 miles an hour between bays that had glaciers still in them. And, of course, in, in Alaska, you see trees and you see there's vegetation in addition to the marine life. And it's it, Alaska is, is very, very scenic, no question about it. But here in Antarctica, you could not turn in any direction without seeing a glacier daily, minute by minute. There was glaciers everywhere, and they were these walls of ice that are hundreds of feet high, coming down the mountainside um, or not even coming to there, just the whole shoreline would be all glacier. And it didn't cave that often because it wasn't that, it was, wasn't warm by any means. So there's a whole different landscape than there is in Alaska because there's only the black and the white and then some animals, which of course penguins are black and white anyway, so that adds to the black and white. And of course it would be easy to argue that we hardly even went into Antarctica because we were only on that little peninsula. Yes, when you look if at you our map. If you get out a map, um, <laughs> it's just, just this one little jagged piece of land that sticks up a little closer to South America than the rest of the continent. And because it's a little closer to the rest of the world and easier to get to, this is an area where a number of countries have research stations. So we were able to visit a few of them, which gave us something to look at that was in <laughs> color that was different from and a glacier. somebody who was anxious to see us. <laughs> and we got such a wonderful reception from yes, these people. They made cookies and had cakes. Snacks and stuff. And they were just glad to see somebody besides themselves, right. I think. And there seemed to be about 25 different kind of landing locations where most of these Antarctic cruises stop. In the they, peninsula. They, they have a choice of that many. Uh, we stopped at six places, and before we left... Ushuaia, before we left on the cruise, they wouldn't uh, make any commitment to stopping anywhere because it's all dependent on the weather and the winds and and getting other us off and getting us back on again. Yeah, safely. So they make no commitment about where you go. And I was kind of thinking, oh, if this cruise is longer, we get to see more things and there would be more places to, to visit. And, and even so, we went on a, a little bit longer cruise than uh, many people do. Ours was uh, 16 days, so it was fairly long. And looking back on it, I'm saying all the places we visited were virtually the same. So where you go is of really not much consequence. I suppose each one had a little bit of difference. We, we might have seen more different kinds of penguins if we had gone longer, know, or more different kinds basic, of sea lions. I know, we saw most of the sea lions that you could see, the different ones. Well, no, not all of them. Well, most of them. <laughs> we saw plenty. <laughs> Plenty of penguins, <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of them, and sea lions. And so I, I don't feel like extending the cruise or visiting other ports. No, I, I don't even want to say visiting ports. Visiting landing sites. Stopping in other places. Stopping in other places would have been beneficial. Or six times getting off the ship was about right. And the cruising around, looking at glaciers and stuff, looking at icebergs and things was very interesting. So I, I feel we got uh, a, a good view of of what Antarctica has to offer a tourist. So I guess in conclusion, I would say glad that we went to Antarctica. Um, yes. It was worth the huge amount of money that we spent, and we could have spent a lot more. We were amazed at the physical limitations that some of our fellow passengers had. Uh, when we booked this tour, um, the agent I spoke to on the forum kind of reacted negatively to how old Which made us worry. we are, even though some of us are not yet in our 70s. This amazed us then when we got on the ship and found that Many people were much less steady on their feet or had various physical limitations or were even wheelchair-bound. They made it work for everybody up to their capabilities. We know of one woman who only actually went on land once. And I think there were quite a few people who didn't get off. And... and she still had a great time. The ship had huge picture windows. You sail into these beautiful areas, and you look right. out the window, and it's fabulous. So if you are old and creaky, um, you can probably still go and have a good time. And that's absolutely true. Uh, we were, as she says, among the younger folks, we were on a tour with Vantage, and we had 52 people in our group, but we were uh, one of uh, several nationalities represented. There were English 
Englishmen British as well as people. as well as Americans and Canadians and lots of Germans and lots of French. So this was a very international voyage, and the ship itself was. Norwegian. So we had salmon three times a day. <laughs> the food was very interesting, I thought. It was like being in Norway. And the ship's currency was the Norwegian Norwegian right. kroner. We didn't expect that either. Which was a surprise. Everything we charged was in kroner, and the, the ship's <clears throat> store was in kroner. And because this ship normally does Norwegian coastal car ferrying during the during the summer months. It was on its way back to Norway <laughs> as we left it. And being on a Norwegian ship also gave us a sense of confidence in that you figured they knew how to handle a stormy seas no. and icy conditions. Um, Maybe. Well, that cruise ship that had problems it had last Norwegian week. had Norwegian pilots on it. it had a and a Norwegian captain. captain. Yeah. yeah. Well, then we had a false sense of security and confidence. But I, when we booked it, I thought, a car ferry? Why the heck would they bring a car ferry down to, to Antarctica in order to do cruises? We now see why, because they use the entire car deck where they ordinarily park the cars for storage of all the equipment they need for going to Antarctica. There were 10 Zodiacs with outboard engines. They just lifted them up and put them right into the car deck. They had kayaks... And this is fun. They had a lot of actually interesting activities. They had snowshoes. They had a complete camping outfit so that people could go t camping overnight. Which we didn't do. Which we didn't do. It was um, $500 a person just to sleep on a chunk of ice overnight. And this would have been tent camping, and we don't do tent camping anymore. <laughs> No RVs. <laughs> they could only take, what, 30 people? Yeah, so, and there was a lottery, so not everybody who wanted to go could go. Um, but we didn't do that. So they had all of these extra activities, and they stored the equipment for that on the car deck where the cars would ordinarily park, and they do for when this becomes a car ferry. And that's the the area that they used for the Zodiac landings was that uh, they had kind of piers that they put out that were ordinarily used for launching or loading cars onto the ferry. So uh, the car ferry actually turned out to be quite a nice uh, way of doing it because other ships that we saw had their Zodiac stacked here, there, and everywhere, you know, just on the back deck, uh, exposed all to the climate. And so this was uh, just a nice, way to, a nice way to do it and didn't cause, uh, well, actually made it very smooth for us as passengers. We didn't even... We were not inconvenienced at all by the Zodiac manipulation. And it was also a possibility if you were inclined to go swimming while oh, you were in Antarctica. Yeah. No. When we were in that volcanic caldera place, uh, the sand was actually steaming from the heat coming from beneath. Yes. From beneath. And the people who did it told us that the first two or three inches now, of the uh, water... What, what's a caldera? ...were pretty warm, and then when you jumped in to the water past that warm layer, it was mighty cold. So the, a caldera, as we learned, because we are now geology experts, was when the top of a volcano blows off. So it's like a bowl. Like a bowl. And when it blows off, there is, uh, in this particular case, because the volcano was below the surface of the water or just right at the surface, when the, the top blew off, the ocean flowed in. And so there was this 12-mile or so across lake that was actually open to the ocean on in one little place and you could you <laughs> the boat could sail through into the caldera and we landed on some of the land that was created by the top of the mountain being blown off what was left now is that too technical no crater lake <laughs> national park is a caldera yes many but of it's the, not in the ocean right many of the islands so it's like the lake in the tahitian islands are calderas so that's well, pretty common okay. yeah they are. I in Hawaii, too, there's that Molokini, Molokini where you can snorkel inside the caldera. It's not that uncommon. And I knew it before we went on this trip. But anyway. This is expert. Anyway. So you didn't learn anything about geology? It was mind-boggling. The ge geologist on board showed us animated films. We've kind of seen this before of, oh, yeah. of their theories of how various land masses on our globe have kind of moved around over the millennium, multi-millennia. Yeah. And they told us that they have found uh, fossils in the Antarctic of like 
warm weather plants and stuff when the Antarctic continent was somewhere else. It was kind of mind boggling to even think about. But the only part of it that you can kind of envision, well, two parts, is where South America kind of tucks up against Africa. Uh-huh. And when we were in Alaska, they talked about people walking across yeah. the Aleutian Islands yeah. from Asia yeah. during that believe. same time. It's hard to imagine. There was a, a land bridge across mm-hmm. between Siberia and <clears throat> So maybe at some time Antarctica was a tropical land, but it's been a while. Are we science skeptics? Oh, we didn't even mention the Falklands. No, we went there too. Uh, So after Antarctica, we spent a day sailing to the Falkland Islands, which uh, was nice because it was similar, but it wasn't as cold. And I should mention uh, now that the... Clothes that we wore were the way we brought were pretty appropriate. I wore one or three layers uh, underneath my jacket, which was just about right. The only thing I would do differently is pay more attention to my in the middle layer that it be more slippery uh-huh. because all of my layers were kind of fuzzy and fleecy and they didn't slide very well against each other. So when I was hiking up like boulders where I needed to bend my knees better, my legs didn't bend because my pants didn't slide. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the only thing I would have done differently. And I was very glad that I had big fuzzy mittens that the tops flipped off of so I could yes. use my camera and keep my fingers warm most of the time. That was a good thing to so, have, too. So uh, it all worked out okay for us. We didn't get too cold. The temperatures were in the low 30s uh, and upper 20s most of the time. But you're only out there for a couple hours, so it didn't uh, really sink in. Uh, but we had the right clothing. Well, we're now talking about three topics at once because we were talking about being in the Falklands well, where the weather was somewhat warmer, and we was, actually saw... I was trying to get Antarctica out of the way. Get, saw some greenness, although not trees. It's still too far south for trees to grow naturally and we went there with the primary purpose of seeing the rookeries for the albatross albatross the largest bird in the world with a wingspan approaching 12 feet awesome so once again we went to the capital of the falklands on one day stanley so that was our really the only port that we saw and the only chance to buy t-shirts and things people went berserk (laughs) we went berserk a town of three thousand so it's not a very big city at all and then we went to a second island in the falklands to look at the for nature for nature and that was once again a zodiac landing uh, that we were experiencing before, but it was much warmer, so we didn't have to wear all those crazy. As a matter of fact, it was quite warm. I was almost 60, yeah. so it was actually a little bit too warm for wearing the boots and things that we had. So have we covered it? We want to be sure oh. to recommend that you visit our website because we have, if you're still interested in this and seeing and seeing some of the things that we have done, I've put up a link to my YouTube post of our slideshow from the from the entire voyage. So you've taken 6,000 pictures and consolidated them into a 19-minute video presentation? Right, a slideshow. I am very glad that I took my computer along. Oh, we should talk about this a little bit, too. I'm very glad that we took our computers along because I was able to edit and work on my pictures. We had a fair amount of downtime every evening. And we had Wi-Fi. I couldn't believe it. I was able to blog throughout the entire trip. Um, It was very slow, as you might imagine, but except for one day when we were in a little area where the mountains were too high, uh, we were connected with the world a little bit. We could do email. We had CNN and BBC. So we had some idea of what was going on in the world. I was quite surprised. They just refurbished this ship in 2016. So they must have put in a new Wi-Fi system because it was actually very impressive and reasonably priced, uh, one price for the whole cruise. So all of our kroner went to... We spent a 1,200 kroner or something, which sounded like a lot, but but it actually turned out to be uh, quite a reasonable amount for the entire voyage for both of us. Go camping in a tent or have Wi-Fi. That's your choice. How's the cabin? It was adequate, but small. Um, It was a place that I could have used a little more storage in, but it was comfortable for sleeping and showering. And then we would go somewhere else. We had a window so we could tell what the weather was like before we went outside. I like that. The ship was modern and had uh, nice facilities and nice lounges. Heated bathroom floor. 
<laughs> yes, a heated bathroom floor. But I think the cabins were small because most of the time it's used for a ferry. A ferry, and you know you might stay a couple nights rather than the fairly extended stay that we were on. But it it worked out fine because you're not there very much, and the lounges and stuff were just fine. How was the food? More than adequate. Most of it was done buffet style. And you could have caviar for breakfast. <laughs> but And I, I did mention about salmon, but every meal had at least one kind of salmon. And often they would have two, a hot and a cold version of salmon, uh, because that's the way the Norwegians do it. And it was very meat-heavy. I was surprised. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even after the two, three weeks on uh, on the ship's stores, we were still having fresh lettuce. I don't know how they do yeah, that. that was We've amazing. always been amazed at how they... There's nowhere to provision on a trip like that. There's clearly no place that they could provision, but they had done this before, and they knew how to provision it for the kind of trip that we were on, and they had fresh stuff all the way through the end, although the bananas ran out. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, something they can't keep. You know when you don't have bananas that they're not getting anything fresh. <laughs> So, can we recommend it? Yes. Can we recommend that you do it two or three times? Probably not. Although there was a couple I know. on our I ship know. who, I think he weighed 400 pounds, who had done it two or three years prior. Yeah. We never saw them get off the ships, but they must have liked looking at it out the window. Okay, so is there some other things that we want to talk about? No. No! <laughs> it's fun to relive it, isn't it? It is. And we have lots of pictures to... Uh, to show uh, exactly what it was like. So we apologize for the lack of RVing in this podcast, and we will do better again next month because in a few days we're going to hit the road. And April 1st we hit the road. Right. The day this podcast comes out, we're on the road to South Carolina or the Carolinas. We're a little bit, we're ready to go and move. I really am a gypsy, but I'm a little bit concerned that we're leaving a little too soon. Um, weather is iffy this time of year. We'll and have we to like put on to, those layers. We like to Will do, I be wearing my long underwear? Yeah, and put your Antarctic uh, shell back on over your layers. Because we like no, to do outside things. No, the shells are electric orange. So I don't think I'll be wearing that. And then they have the lime-colored hood. Mm-hmm. So everybody looked the same on shore because they were all wearing the same. The only way I could tell you was by your knapsack because it had a uh-huh. different color than some of the others. Yeah, I put my camera in a knapsack. It was waterproof so that it wouldn't uh, get damaged by the potential salt water that was there. So uh, what other things have we done here? How about a movie that we saw? We just saw the new Apollo 11 movie, which we especially appreciated seeing while we're here in the land of Apollo. Yes. Um, very close to the Cape Kennedy and the NASA facilities. And as we understand it, this was a film made um, of all documentary footage that was taken throughout the entire time of the Apollo flight from when the... This was the first landing on the moon. When the rocket was first brought to the launch pad and the astronauts got in it and they flew there and they flew back and it was all documentary footage with very little narration and you really felt like you were... No, no modern narration. Well, Walter Walter Cronkite Cronkite said a few things. But that was from the time. Yeah. So this is a movie that is gives you a sense of what it was like to go to the moon and the tense nature. The fact they didn't know whether this was going to be successful. It wasn't made in retrospect. This was new archival footage that they had put together to make this new film called Apollo 11. And to look at it and to realize that every person there was in the moment. There are no actors. There's no narration. No recreation. No recreations. It's the real thing. And all these white men wearing white shirts. Smoking. <laughs> and using and ties. And using their slide rules and, to figure out what they're what they're gonna do. It and was as amazing. You, as many of you know, we're in Titusville, which is the closest town to the Kennedy Space Center. And we have been in the control room on a tour of the Kennedy Space Center. We, When you see pictures of the cars watching the launch, we have been right there. There's a penny store that we've seen. Just the fact that we are so close to it here makes it just hit home. It's What America did in those years since Kennedy said we are going to the moon, those five years is just an amazing accomplishment. And the fact that it all worked almost perfectly. Anyway. It really... I would go see... It was a really moving experience. And, of course, I can remember exactly where I was... Because you're old. When he... Well, it was 50 years ago. Yeah. People who are younger than me can't 
No, they've seen movies of it, but well, maybe it won't be as poignant for other people. We, but if, we, we if, feel like we really lived through it, yeah. it really took us back. And unlike uh, First Man, which is a similar movie, but it's it is a, a fictionalized fic- account. Yes, with dialogue and families, and this is the real thing. So I would strongly recommend that you go take a look at this. The footage is great. And while we are digressing, uh, we might also put in a plug for another film we saw uh-huh. um, yes. not too long ago called They Shall Never Grow Old, which took place before we were born in World War II, where Peter Jackson of Hollywood movie fame was given access to a lot of black yes. and white archival, archival documentary footage that the British took of their soldiers yes. during World War II. And he restored the film, he colorized it, and then he hired lip yeah. readers to do the conversations yes. that people were having with each other and came as close to recreating, recreating that experience for us as possible. I think there probably aren't too many people alive who remember those events. But no, this too, I don't remember those, but it was still poignant. This was a very moving experience and a real feat of filmmaking. So we'll give that a plug, too. They Shall Never Grow Old. It's on Netflix now? Uh, my understanding is it's theater. streamable. So you might want to just watch it as uh, without having to pay extra. So maybe we should talk a little bit about uh, RVing stuff, huh? We just bought a 30-foot Astoria fifth wheel with three slides with one AC and the usual appliances. We were told at the dealership that even though we are set up for 50 amp now, we could still use 30 amp because we only have one AC. That we only need to use 50 amp to to run two ACs. We would like to know if anyone who has a fifth wheel who knows if this is correct. We are in the process of booking campsites, and this would give us more options. Thank you. Maybe we should say that this was an email that we received. When you started reading it, I thought you were talking about yourself. No, no, no. So the question boils down to can you, if you normally use 50 amps, use 30? Theoretically, yes. Absolutely. You, you just get you the just converter be, and plug yourself in. You can run any RV off of any amperage as long as you pay attention to what you want to do with your electricity. And what you have to learn, which in my case has been very painful, is... <laughs> is it ever? Which gizmos you use require more or less juice. And certainly air conditioning and heating are among the more thirsty things that you would do in your RV. And this person needs to understand... That it's not just the AC, but it's the entire package of things that you use. What is your, how does your refrigerator keep things cool? How do you heat your hot water? Do you have have propane? And what appliances do you want to use to keep yourself going? You know, what's what's the bottom line here? You can run RV off of any amperage. It's and, just and a then matter to complicate, of deciding what you want to do. And then to complicate things even a bit more, when you think you've got your handle on all of this, um, I still vividly remember a time we camped in Hershey, Pennsylvania for the RV show there, and we were plugged into 50 amps on a very hot, humid day, but we were apparently at the end of the line of a lot of other RVs plugged in on a very hot, humid day, and there wasn't enough juice left for us. Yes. So even though it said 50 amps, right. we could we run our air conditioning. Near, we were not getting anywhere near 50 amp. It's not the same right. as being in a house. You always have to be prepared for lower amperage. And one of the things that I think we've mentioned that uh, we have is a hybrid inverter. And an inverter takes 12 volts from the batteries and turns it into 110, which is what you need for most of the appliances in your RV. So how does that work? Well, you plug in and you say to the inverter that uh, I only want to use 20 amps out of the shore power, and inverter, you supply whatever else I need. And our inverter will provide up to 30 amps extra. So that, now this is for short periods of time and doesn't work for the air conditioner, but it will give you extra power when you want to do cooking or washing or whatever you want to do that would take ordinarily extra power. Now, would a trailer typically come with such an inverter? No. But you could buy one? At least not not most of the time. You could buy it. Yes, you'd have to install it. This would be an inverter that would be so part of your So more typically you'd get internal. it in a higher-end motorhome? Yeah, and we, or as in our case where we installed it, but I, maybe newer ones come with that. Now, in addition, if you're going to, the, to answer this person's question, your RV is going to have a 50-amp plug on it. 
which is the four pin plug. And that four pin plug will only plug into a 50 amp outlet. So if you are planning to use, or if you're going to go to a campsite that only has 30, then you need a 50 to 30 amp adapter which is called a dog bone usually because it has two large connectors on the end of a short wire. So it will have the four-pin female and the three-pin that you would have for the 30-amp on the male end. And you might also want to have a 50 to 20-amp, which and the 20-amp is the one that you're that's uh, common in all Homes. home plugs, the 20 or 15 amp, because there might be times when you want to plug into that kind of plug also. And that would be very restrictive, but it would keep your batteries charged and you could watch TV. And if you had an inverter, you could uh, add to the power that you have. And you can do stuff like buy, make sure all your light bulbs are LED. That's pretty common these days. But that's a drop in the bucket. No, those are 12 volts. Oh, that's right. That doesn't count against See, that's one of the things that people have with this confusion with electricity is is that there's a 12 volt and then there's the 120. And so many times we hear people say, well, I have no lights, but my refrigerator is running. Or I have no lights and I can, my air conditioner is still running. Well, that's because your batteries are dead, but the, you're plugged into shore power. So there are all sorts of issues with this. Very confusing. Still? Yes. Even after all these years? Yes. Well, I hope that helps people. Um, Shall we answer another question? Oh, okay. My wife and I need to move from Philly to Seattle with four pets. We're thinking about buying a Class A gas motorhome. We have experience towing boats and trailers long distances. We would drive as much as we could per day and stay in hotel parking lots. Not sure about that. Our goal is just to get there. I'm thinking 300 miles a day is realistic, but I'm seeking advice on what is realistic number of miles to drive per day in a big motorhome. We would probably both be driving. My first reaction to this question was, why would you do it this way? I would never buy a motorhome just to be a moving van for my pets. Well, that's not a, that's not the question that they're asking. <laughs> And I think for the most part, hotels would not like you camping in their no, parking see, lots either. That, That's that not a viable choice either. And how many miles you can drive in a day, especially with two people driving, you by yourself often drive 300 miles a day. Oh, up to 500. Easily. Yeah, I think you know, you, you've got to decide how much time you have. And basically our philosophy is not more than 300 miles a day when we're not on the in, a road, hurry. in a hurry. And it's just you. And it's I'm just me, driving. right. So I will drive five or six hours in a day, and I consider that a reasonable amount of uh, of driving. And, of course, it depends on whether you're on the expressways or whether you're on two-lane roads. And, and there are a number of factors. But I would say our philosophy of 300 or 3 o'clock is kind of a good guideline for a single driver. People, you could even take turns and nap, yep. and you could drive very long days and get, get to I wouldn't drive after dark. I think yeah. that's one of the factors. In the wintertime, you know, it gets dark so early, early that you better be at your campsite before 4 o'clock because it's going to get dark. And it doesn't. the sun doesn't come up until 8 o'clock, so you're going to limit your factors there. But in the summertime, you might be able to put some more miles on, under your belt in, or by the end of the day. But for us... Yes, we do do long drives when we're driving across the country, but that usually is limited to four or fifty, five hundred miles. Or we're trying to escape the cold. Trying to escape the cold. Yes, yeah, yeah. Another thing to think about, you said, and I don't enjoy that. No, it's not fun. Whereas driving three hundred miles, two hundred miles in a day, that's no problem. You're there early. You get plenty of time to do what you want to do. And you need to assess your pets too. You didn't say what kind of pets you have. It's my impression that dogs like to travel much more than cats do, um, and uh, sometimes they get carsick or get anxious or throw up. Or you want to kind of assess how long they want to drive every day, as well as how long you want to drive every day. Yeah, but I think Class A is a better choice for that kind of traveling because not only can you condition it and you can keep an eye on them right but uh, they would otherwise be in the back of your truck and which means they would be kind of cramped up and they would need a lot of care and attention if you're in a class a you can feed them and they can have water and they can kind of walk around a little bit so i would think that that would be much better for a class a and to buy a motorhome just to do that. Well, a lot of RVers have, have pets. Have our an RV because they want to have pets. They want to travel. So and they want to have a that's pet. That's not uncommon, and that's <laughs> something we have come to expect. 
one of our listeners asked me about how we do record keeping and what kind of records? Well, he was asking about logs and doing journaling. Not financial records. Mm, he didn't mention that specifically, so I th- said that we would kind of talk about that. Although I don't do that specifically, we <laughs> I think kind of do it through the back door by just kind of uh, keeping track of things. You use? I have been a fan of my trip journal since I retired, and the main thing that I like about it is the mapping feature that it has. Many of the places that we go, even less exotic than Antarctica, our friends and family say, "Where on earth is that? Where where are you?" And with my trip journal, I'm able to put a little dot on the map every day, and people can keep track of us and where we're going. It also allows me to put up pictures and videos. It's my favorite at the moment. But it is online, and so you have to be connected. I have to be connected to post. When I was in Antarctica, sometimes I would write my journal entries and then just post them. In a word processor. When I had Wi-Fi access, yeah. And we will give you access to that if you want to look at it. Our listeners can go to the blog. It's at mytripjournal.com slash Wiseman. So if you want to look at uh, what My Trip Journal looks like, very nice for doing all sorts of trips. And it's a great resource if you are looking to do a trip. We read many of other people's blogs, especially before we went to Alaska, to kind of get a sense of pace and things to see while we were up there. Um, Because that's often a question when you're planning your own trip, is how much time should I allow? How long will it take me to get from one place to another? So all the other journals that are housed on the My Trip Journal website are a valuable research resource in and of themselves and if you're cheap you can use a free version which puts ads on your blog um but i pay for ours and it's about i think it's gone up it's 90 dollars a year now. 90 we pay that much heavens what are we doing another uh interesting uh logging app is track my tour and we do this also because it allows you to take pictures and then it posts those pictures on a map so that you get to see your route and it keeps track of your route. You can also add in comments and, and uh, write some journaling. I also use uh, Day One as an app. Day One is a journaling app that allows you to, uh, that keeps track of your location and allows you to write as much as you want to about uh, the specific locations that you're going to. Do you make that public as well? I do not make that public. But you can. But you can. Yes, it's up to you. Uh, the other app that I use is called Fuel Monitor. And this one keeps track of all of our vehicles and exactly what I've done to them. So it allows me to put in uh, the repairs that we do to the to the vehicles, the updates. The Every time I get fuel, I put it in, and so it keeps a running total of our gas mileage. And I have three vehicles in there, so it does all three of them separately. It's a very nice app for doing... Uh, keep your track of repairs and oil changes, and it will give you warnings when it's time to uh, do an oil change and that sort of stuff. So that's where I keep track of all of the information about the, our vehicles. But I would say when people say to you, what does this lifestyle cost you per month, we don't keep very good track I don't care. of that. <laughs> I don't want to know. Well, <laughs> Well, we kind of. Well, it varies so much. It it does. You know, when we were in Antarctica, we spent a pile of money. Um, when we've been here in Florida, we've been living kind of like we do at home. Uh, well, we haven't been doing a lot of touristic stuff, and we so don't we have haven't monthly, paid a lot of admissions. Yeah. Uh, we haven't gone out to eat a whole lot, so we go to the grocery store and I cook the food just like I would at home. So it really depends. Right, and we're not paying monthly or nightly campground fees because it's included because we own the site, so it's not a, an ongoing expense other than for the yearly costs that we, that we have. But, so we don't keep track of that as a rule. And my impression is that people spend as much money as they have. And um, <laughs> if they really don't have enough money, then they get a job on the road or work camp or do something like that so they can make it work. So to end this off... We'll talk about the app-controlled mini-car hauling camper trailer echoes the look of the Mercedes Sprinter towing it. How does that sound? So this is an interesting vehicle. It's nice looking. This was at the RVX, the the show in Salt Lake City where all of the manufacturers showed off their latest and greatest. And this is a kind of a nice idea, frankly, because it basically has a B that is a sprint on a sprinter chassis but it is towing what looks like a matching trailer 
that is about the same length as the B. And I'm assuming, although they don't have a floor plan for this, that in the trailer, the back end of the B, that it has additional sleeping quarters and maybe a bathroom and that sort of stuff. So it's kind of an RV with trailer so that you could leave the trailer at the RV site and go off in your B and do touristic stuff during the day and then come back to the B and together they would offer a Class A type experience. On the website, they talked about it as a mother-in-law suite. Oh, you could even have people you don't want to talk to and put them back there. (laughs) There's no, it does not appear to be any walkthrough between them, but they they look like a A companion piece, a match set. And I assume because the trailer is match set (laughs) that it was easily towable by the printer. So that's uh, this is by Chinook, and that's an interesting idea. We'll have a picture of it on the website for you to take a look at. But the trailer is 23 foot long. That's decent and then it has the class b in the in the front end so you might want to take a look at that if you're in the market for that kind of vehicle so with that said we will turn it over to next month and we will be on the road again and you will be hearing from us from who knows we might be in Chicago. We might even make it home by we then. We might even make it home by the beginning of May. It depends on the weather. Who knows? We are not really confined to any schedule other than a couple of things that we're doing. But we are on the road. And are we worried about finding campsites? Not going north. I Although I so. do have the impression from what I read that people are having more difficulty floating around than they used to. Although we've made some reservations and haven't had any trouble at all. So in Savannah, and we're going up to Washington, D.C., staying at Cherry Hill. That which was is pretty booked up when you made that reservation. Not really. Or, Neither one was very booked or up. Or you wanted to stay. And I made the reservation within the last month, so it isn't. We're not doing it far no. in advance. Within the well, last month, you were in Antarctica. Yeah, but I made it in February. Anyway, we're not worried. So we will turn it over to next month, and we're very glad that you tuned in to listen and hope that you enjoyed Antarctica with us. Please take a look at the website and take a look at the pictures that we have, download the video, and consider going to Antarctica in the near future. Otherwise, keep those emails coming and questions and topic suggestions so that we will talk about things that interest you when we are in our at-home studio next month. And we'll see you in a campground near us, and you just might see us in a campground near you in the next month. Talk to you later. Happy travels. Happy travels.